Father, what a glorious day that will be when your people dwell in your presence without limitation, without barrier, and without end. Lord, we long for that day, and it's in that longing that we approach Revelation 21 today and hear what your word has to say about the future. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill each of us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, less of me, less of us, and more of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I hope you found Revelation 21 and verse 9. In this last section of Revelation, John is seeing visions of the new creation, which Jesus will usher in when he returns. Now, the first part of Revelation 21, we looked at last week, introduced the new heaven and the new earth. And in the rest of chapter 21, in the beginning of uh, chapter 22, John records detailed visions that he saw that revealed different aspects of the new creation. And so with that, let's read Revelation 21, 9 through 27. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is 
the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, this past week, I had the privilege of representing our church at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptists of Texas Convention. And at events like that, there's a lot of opportunities to learn from other churches. The convention itself was at a large church in the Metroplex, and um, just walking around their campus, I got a lot of ideas. I was texting our staff pictures, even, of things we could learn from. Um, I uh, also had several conversations with other pastors and uh, got to hear about what other churches are doing. And, of course, that gets me thinking about things that we can be doing. Um, Plus, I I sat in several sessions uh, in which we were hearing presentations or sermons about ministry and about missions. And and those things got me excited about having an even higher priority on ministries like prayer and evangelism and preaching. It's helpful to look at the example of other churches. Uh, We look to a church that is really healthy in one particular area, and it helps us grow healthier in that area. But, of course, every church has its problems. Uh, Even the strongest and the healthiest churches, uh, we shouldn't emulate everything about what they're doing. So then, what if, we could look at the perfect church. What if we could learn from the example of a church that does everything exactly the way it's supposed to be done? What if we could learn from the example of a church that has perfect priorities, that has a perfect community, that has perfect ministry? Well, if you want to see what the perfect church looks like, Don't look to the Metroplex. Don't look to Atlanta or London or Nairobi or Dubai. Don't look to this old earth because you won't find the perfect church in it. If you want to see what the perfect church looks like, look to Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, John sees a picture of the perfect church. Or we could say John sees the church perfected. He sees the church glorified, looking exactly how God always meant for it to be. And by looking at the church on the new earth, we can learn a lot about who we should be as a local church on this old earth. In this portrait of the perfect church, there is one feature that is most important. And, you know, we're going to talk about several details in this vision that John saw, but there is one detail that is ultimate. Everything else that is good about this perfect church flows out of one central feature. The most important feature of the perfect church 
is the presence of the glory of God. The main point I want you to hear today is this. The church is who it should be when God's glory is where it should be. The church is who it should be when God's glory is where it should be. Now let me show you this in the text. Look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, if those words of verse 9 sound familiar to you, it's because John used almost these exact words back in chapter 17, verse 1, where he said, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And so by using this same phrase, John is setting up a contrast. In chapter 17, he was shown the great prostitute, the sinful world that was united with the beast. But here in chapter 21, he has shown the perfect bride, the church, who is united to Christ. But while John hears the angels say he is going to show him a bride, John sees something else. Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You might remember in Revelation 5, John heard about a lion, but he saw a lamb. In Revelation 7, he heard about 144,000, but he saw a countless multitude. Now here, he hears about a bride, but he sees a city. The bride, the church, is pictured as the holy city, New Jerusalem. And the most important thing he says about this city is in verse 11. He says, the New Jerusalem came down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. This holy city was radiant like a precious jewel. It, it was, if you will, shining shimmering, splendid, okay? But what makes this holy city glow? The glory of God. In verse 23, he says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The glory of God shines so brightly in the holy city that there isn't even a need for sun or a moon. The whole city is radiant with the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? You know, the glory of God is an idea found throughout Scripture, but it can be hard to define sometimes. Often in Scripture, it's described as if it were physical light, like in a passage that we're going to hear a lot about in the coming weeks, Luke 2, about the birth of Jesus. The angel appeared to the shepherds, and Luke 2, 9 says, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
Uh, but the glory of God isn't just light. It's, it's not just photons or whatever. It, my favorite definition of the glory of God comes from John Piper. He puts it this way. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Let me read that again. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. If you take all the different ways that God is wonderful, and you look at them all together, the whole picture of who God is has a beauty that goes beyond any one specific attribute. God's glory is the greatness of all that He is. And God's glory shines from His presence. When Jesus was about to ascend to His Father, He prayed in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus shared in the fullness of the glory of God in the Father's presence in heaven. And he was about to return to that glory by ascending to heaven. Heaven is where God's presence is most fully manifested, and it is where God's glory is most clearly revealed. So coming back to Revelation 21, then it makes sense that John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is why the city is aglow with the glory of God, because in the city is the presence of God. One book of the Bible that speaks a lot about God's glory, and that's very important for understanding Revelation 21, is the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel wrote about the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, which was God's judgment upon Judah for their sin. And the most tragic moment of God's judgment on Judah that Ezekiel records is toward the beginning of the book when Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, you, if you know Ezekiel, there's that word Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. But throughout the book, God promises salvation for Judah. And he promises a day when his glory would return to his people. And he would once again dwell with them. The whole book of Ezekiel culminates in the final chapters, chapters 40 through 48, in which Ezekiel records how God gave him an apocalyptic vision of a new temple, an end times temple. Ezekiel saw a day when God's glory that left the first temple would return to this end times temple. And in Revelation 21, John is seeing the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. The glory of God is shining in the end times temple. The greatest feature of the new Jerusalem that was anticipated in the Old Testament and that's anticipated in the New Testament is the presence of the glory of God. So then, if, if the presence of the glory of God is so important, how do we get it? <laughs> how do we experience the glory of God? What do we do? Well, we don't do anything. The presence of the glory of God comes to us by grace and through faith. 
God graciously shines his glory in us throughout the process of salvation. We belong to God's people because of God's glory. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you trusted in Christ, it was because God revealed his glory to you in Christ Jesus. He gave you a glimpse of the beauty and greatness of his manifold perfection that drew you to himself. But not only that, we grow in Christ-likeness because of God's glory. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We become who God wants us to be by beholding God's glory, the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. We become who God wants us to be by beholding God's glory. So, all of that, was a whole lot of explanation and a whole lot of Bible just to say the church is who it should be when God's glory is where it should be. It's true in the future for the perfect church. and It's true for us today. As a church, we will only be who we are supposed to be Because God who is who he is. Without God, we have nothing. Without his glory, we have no glory. We are not like the sun that has its own brightness. We are like the moon that has no glory in and of itself. Only God's glory causes us to radiate. And while we don't have to do anything to get God's glory, there are things that we do that can block his glory from shining. We can't stop the sun from shining, but we can put up an umbrella that leaves us in a shadow. And when we block God's glory from shining, we are not who God wants us to be. However, when the glory of God is free to shine in our church, God's glory will shine within us, God's glory will shine among us, and God's glory will shine out from us. Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So then, what does the church look like when it experiences the fullness of the presence of the glory of God? What does a church look like when the glory of God is central? Well, let's answer that question by taking a look at couple of features of Revelation 21. I want us to see two marks of the perfect church from this chapter. The first mark of the perfect church, the perfect church is holy. The perfect church is holy. The first thing John says about the New Jerusalem is that it is the holy city. Holy means devoted or set apart. The New Jerusalem is fully devoted to God. 
Holiness was a major theme in the Old Testament instructions about the tabernacle and the temple. Everything used in the worship of God was to be holy. Uh, These things could not be used for common tasks. They were set apart for worship. They could not be unclean. They had to be ceremonially clean and devoted to God. The priest's garments were to be holy. The altars were to be holy. The anointing oil and the utensils used were to be holy. And most holy of all was the inner sanctuary of the temple or the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And that was where God manifested his glory. So then, consider how John describes the New Jerusalem. He sees the angel measure the city, and he records what he finds in verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, remember, this is a symbolic vision. John was not seeing a movie reel of what the new earth is literally going to look like. The city is the bride, the church. So then, why the dimensions? Why, what is significant about these dimensions? Well, notice that the new Jerusalem is a perfect cube. There is only one other perfect cube in Scripture, and it is the Holy of Holies the most holy place, the inner sanctuary of the temple. And the New Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, isn't just one small part of the holy city. The entire city is the Holy of Holies. Or we could say that the whole church will be the most holy place, the place where God's glory dwells. And this is further seen in the description that follows. After describing the city's measurements, John describes in verse 19 how the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then he describes 12 different precious stones. In the Old Testament, the high priest would wear a breastplate with 12 precious stones on it whenever he entered the most holy place to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So here again, there is this temple imagery being used to describe the holy city, the people of God. And in case there was any doubt that we should understand the holy city to be a temple, we read in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. So in the New Jerusalem, the temple is God himself. The presence of his glory fills the entire city. The people of God will be the place where God's glory dwells. And when the church experiences the fullness of the presence of the glory of God, the church will be holy. Verse 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Like everything in the Old Testament temple was holy, so everyone in the New Jerusalem will be holy. No one who devotes himself to any other object of worship will be there. 
No one who does anything that violates God's law will be there. No one who is not a genuine follower of Jesus will be there. When the church experiences the fullness of the presence of the glory of God, the church will be holy. And if that's how the church will be then, then that's how the church should be now. If holy is going to be who we are then, then we should pursue holiness now. This vision of the holy city ought to spur us on toward holiness. That's why God gave Ezekiel his vision of the holy city too. In fact, in Ezekiel 43, God tells Ezekiel to describe the end times temple to God's people so that they would be ashamed of their sin. God intended the description of the end times temple to convict Israel of their sin so that they would repent and pursue holiness. And likewise, Revelation 21 should prompt us to pursue holiness. And holiness, again, means to be devoted or set apart for God. I think when we think about holiness, we often think about good works, and that's a good start. Holiness includes good works, putting off lies and speaking truth, putting off anger and walking in gentleness, putting off words that tear down and replacing them with words that build up. But holiness is, is, is about more than just doing good things or, or being a good person. Holiness is about being set apart, devoted to God. Holiness is about recognizing that if I belong to God, God has set me apart for himself. Like the utensils in the tabernacle, like the most holy place, this is reserved for God alone and not to be used for any other purpose. It's the kind of attitude that Paul reflects when he says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Holiness recognizes God has set me apart for himself. I am not my own. Holiness begins by seeing the glory of God. I see the beauty of who God is. I see His worthiness, His surpassing greatness, His manifold perfections. And so I say, it is all for you. And yes, that means I should replace sin with virtue, but it's so much more than that. It means that everything I am is devoted to God. Everything that is in my life is devoted to God, is oriented around God being at the center of the universe. It means my money should be devoted to God. The way I spend my money ought to make a statement. If you find your friend is pulling all of his money out of the stock market, you're going to think, what does he know that I don't? Well, if you see the bank statements of someone who is devoted to God, you ought to think, what do they have that I don't? What is different about them? What have they seen that I haven't seen? You know, when, when you see someone with this lavish mansion, 
it's not unreasonable to think, wow, they have devoted a lot of money to themselves. But when you look at someone pursuing holiness and how they spend their money, you should think, wow, they have devoted a crazy amount of money to what God values. Uh, being holy means everything is devoted to God. Money, time. Being holy means my time should be devoted to God. Walking in holiness means I, I plan my schedule saying, God, this is yours. This time is devoted to you, so I want to spend it not on my preferences, but on your priorities. When I recognize all that God has done for me in Christ, then it will change what I do with my day, what, what I do with my week, what I do with my year. We need to recognize the glory of God and let that lead us to being fully devoted in every way to God, to be holy, set apart for Him. Because when the church radiates with the holiness that comes from God's glory, we shine before a watching world. Paul said in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. When the church experiences the fullness of the presence of the glory of God, the church will be holy. So if you want to fuel your passion for holiness, your desire to be devoted to God, then be holy. The glory of God. Look to Jesus, whom Hebrews 3 describes as the radiance of the glory of God. Behold his excellence, who he is, what he's done. Look at just how worthy he is and let his glory drive you to devote yourself to him in holiness. What does the church look like when it experiences the fullness of the presence of the glory of God? Well, the first mark of the perfect church is it is holy. Second mark of the perfect church is it is united. The perfect church is united. In Revelation 21, we see the unity of all God's people across time and space. We see the church united across historical barriers. So in verses 12 through 14, John describes the wall of the holy city. He says the wall had 12 gates, and each of the 12 gates had one of the names of the sons of Israel inscribed on it. He also says the wall had 12 foundations, and on those were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Tribes of Israel, apostles of the Lamb, and this is a picture of the unity of the people of God. Beginning with the promise God made to Abraham, and extending all the way to the disciples of Jesus, there has always and only ever will be one people of God. All people who share faith in Jesus Christ will be united together as the new Jerusalem. We see not only this church united across historical barriers, we also see the church united across geographical barriers. Look at verses 24 through 26. 
By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. In the new Jerusalem, there will be people from every nation. Uh, This is another glimpse of what John saw in Revelation 7-9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. All people who have trusted in Christ, no matter where they are from, will be united as the new Jerusalem. Uh, We'll all be different. We'll be diverse. But we will be united. Paul writes about this unity in Ephesians 2. Turn with me there, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19, says this. Paul's writing, and he's addressing Gentile believers. And he says, so then you, Gentile believers, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, Jewish believers, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which should sound familiar, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is uniting all of his people from all times and from all places together as one temple for his glory to dwell. When the church experiences the fullness of the presence of the glory of God, the church will be united. And if the church will be united then, then the church should be united now. Like with holiness, unity is about more than just doing good stuff to get along with people. Unity begins by beholding the glory of God. Holiness begins by beholding the glory of God. Unity begins by beholding the glory of God. Think back to what we looked at a few weeks ago in Ephesians 4. If you're still in Ephesians 2, you can flip ahead to Ephesians 4. Um, I preached a whole sermon on unity in the body of Christ from Ephesians 4. I promise I am not going to re-preach that sermon now. But if you glance at Ephesians 4, I would remind you that Paul does not just say, hey, here's a bunch of things you should do to be united as a church. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. After giving instructions and the practicalities of building unity, Paul rushes to point us to the glory of who God is and what he has done. Because Paul understood that unity does not just come from strategizing. 
Unity comes from beholding. The church is unified when it beholds the glory of God. We must look at who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must look at what he has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus to make us one body through one faith and one baptism and how he has given us our one hope. We need to have our vision so dominated by the glory of God that he outshines anything that would divide us. Yes, that brother sinned against me. But have you seen the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus? Have you seen the glory of the cross and its power to forgive sin? When I compare that sin against me to the glory of God, it's like comparing a pebble to Everest. Sure, we may disagree about minor doctrines. We might have disagreements about wisdom issues and ministry. But have you seen how beautiful the God is who has united us together in Christ Jesus? How could we let our little differences come between us when we worship the same glorious God? When the church radiates the unity that comes from God's glory, we shine not only among ourselves, but we shine before a watching world. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When the church experiences the fullness of the presence of the glory of God, the church will be united. So let's behold our glorious God together and radiate with his light. And may the Lord use that to draw even more people to himself. The church is who it should be when God's glory is where it should be. So let me urge us as a church to keep the glory of God central. May we not get distracted by other things. May we not just go through the motions of religious living. May we behold the glorious God together. Let's let the beauty and the greatness of who God is fill our vision and fill our conversations and fill our worship services and fill our homes and fill this church that his glory might shine among us and out from us into the darkness around us. On the day when the church is glorified, it will be because of God's glory. So let me close with the words of 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not appeared, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Father, we want to see you. Or we confess this side of glory we see through a mirror dimly. 
Lord, we are at times blocked from the fullness of your glory by our own sin, by the world around us, by any number of distractions, lesser glories, and Lord, we confess that we need to see you. We need to look to you. We need to behold who you are. Because Lord, in the end, the holiness, the unity, the beauty, the security, or everything about who we will be in the end comes from your glory, the presence of your glory when we see you as you are. And so, Lord, as we seek to, to endure to that day, as we seek to walk faithfully until that day, Lord, show us your glory. Help us put away all the distractions. Help us put away all the other sources of beauty that might distract us from the ultimate beauty. Lord, would we fix our eyes on you? Oh, the things of earth grow strangely dim. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.